Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this Thanksgiving holiday week, we turn to our archives for a 2019 conversation with Chris Arnotti and his book, Dignity. Arnotti was a Wall Street trader who gave up that life to pick up a camera and walk through neighborhoods on the so-called margins of society. He hoped to listen and learn and ultimately document the stories of the people he met and befriended there, stories he shares with us in this episode. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Chris Arnotti, I want to put the cover of your new book, Dignity, on the screen and uh, have you explain its essence to me. Okay. Um, Dignity is a, a book about my um, five years driving around the United States, spending time in what I would call back row America, the part of America that is everywhere. It's not a bled red state or blue state thing. It's it's towns and communities that have been kind of ignored or left behind or forgotten. Um, places like Selma, Alabama, places like um, north side of uh, Milwaukee, places like the Bronx in New York City, um, places that um, are kind of stigmatized and defined in various ways as being um, places where there's high crime or poverty, but places that make up a large, large part of the United States. So that's the back row, and define the front row of America. The front row is me. It's uh, me and my colleagues. Uh, I used to work in Wall Street. I was there for 20 years um, before I did this. Um, I have a PhD in physics. Those are kind of two very, what I call, front row professions. Um, People who have Harvard degrees, Yale degrees, um, people who make up a a large part of the political class, um, people who make up large part of Wall Street and large part of the journalism media. Um, people who, you know, are very different in many different ways, but have a similar lived experience after high school, which is primarily about where they go to college, where they go to school. And the poor, which a lot of these folks are, have always been a part of our society and many Western societies. Is there anything distinctive about people who are poor in America now? I think the gap, first of all, I mean, I would say that part of the change over the last, over my lifetime, certainly, and I'm, I'm in the, my 50s, is the income, the, the gap between the poor and the, and the wealthy, both statistically, um, has, has, has grown, certainly in the last 30 years. But what I found, and what my book tries to highlight is, the differences are not just about statistics. The differences are about how people live, how people think, how people... 
um, you know, their whole worldview. And what I learned in my, my book, and I hope I, I can um, communicate to the reader, is that being poor or being forgotten or left behind is not just about a statistic. It's about a way of life. It's about feeling humiliated. It's about feeling disenfranchised. It's about feeling like the whole way you view the world is uh, is ignored and, and, and demeaned and, and looked down on. And I think um, I call the book Dignity because what I found during those five years all over the United States in these communities was I found a a frustration and a humiliation, but a search for dignity, a desire to be dignified, a desire to have dignity, um, despite what statistically is really bad circumstances. The concept of uh, pulling oneself up by the bootstraps has been part of America from its very beginning. You think about Abraham Lincoln, even as running for office, from the log cabin uh, to to the White House. Uh, Is that uh, concept one that's grounded in reality in this country? Um, I certainly don't think so. I think, you know, it's it's a wonderful ethos, the idea that, um, you know, I think everybody I met during my journey um, has aspirations to pull themselves up. But I think um, the ability to do that is very much about where you are and who you know. Um, and I think in this world that we've created, um, where I, th- where I say we have this gap between the front row, the educated elite, and the back row, the people I spent time with, um, that gap is so large. And that gap is so large not only in material terms, but also in kind of how people think about the world, that some people in the back row don't even know what it means to be in the front row. They don't know how to pull themselves up. They don't know, you know, one of the things... We in the front row, we educated, we all know how to, we know the rules. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to study real hard, sit in the front row, listen to the teacher, perform well on tests, go to the right schools, which gets, build a resume to get us in the right schools, which gets us into the right jobs, which gets us into the right neighborhoods, which give us, you know, so and so and so and so on. People in the back row don't know that. Some of them just don't know that that exists, and that's, they don't know, they don't know the map. You know, they don't know how to do it. And I think, not, and even if they do know how to do it, there's just so many obstacles in their way. I liken it, you know, to, to succeed in the world we've created, to be successful, to go to Harvard on a scholarship, and then, you know, go to graduate school and then work as a Wall Street trader. You have to walk this tightrope of doing all these things right. Um, at the very beginning. And if you make one mistake and fall off, then you often can't, you're go- it's over. You can't do it. Is Dignity, the book, inherently political? Not explicitly. I certainly intended it to be a time book that was timeless in that sense. Um, it wasn't, it happened at the five years I was doing the research. Um, it took place during the election of um, 2016, so it's hard not to have politics explicitly in it. Um, but explicitly, I think, I think the 2016 election is only mentioned three times in the book out of 300 pages. But I think the political ramifications are clear. I think what the book, I hope, communicates to people is that um, 
if you are in a forgotten community and you do feel humiliated and you want dignity, um, there are political political ramifications for a lot of people feeling that way. Um, you know, if you're if the if if a large percent of the electorate is so frustrated and feeling humiliated, um, the political consequences I think that are pretty clear. You're going to have people who, in some cases, just remove themselves from so frustrated they just opt out of the system. I call it uh, justified cynicism. They just look at the system and say. Nope. <laughs> I don't. Why? Why should I play this game? Um, and then there's another group of people who are just going to basically, you know, knock over the table. Um, you know, it's not things aren't working for them as is. So why not just <laughs> knock over the table and try something different? There, um, I heard in an interview that you said that the the book has generally been ignored by people on the left of the political spectrum. If that's the case, why do you think it's so? It seems ultimately something of an indictment of capitalism. So why would it not appeal to people on that part of the spectrum? I don't know. Um, it, it's, for me, um, a little surprising. I'm, uh, you know, for some background, I'm, my parents are both Democrats. I was raised, uh, you know, that we had the, we had Democratic club meetings in our house as a kid. Um, a lifetime Democrat. Um, and I count myself as a leftist, and I thought the book was, to the degree it has an ideology, it's pretty, as you said, an indictment of the current capitalistic system. Um, I think part of it is, one of the chapters is called Faith, Um, and one of the lessons I learned over those five years was the importance of faith, and the the, um, very... um, dignified role that religion plays in people's lives. And I think that caught people on the left off guard. I think some on the left don't particularly want to hear that. And I say this as somebody who started the project as an atheist. Um, I count myself now as something of an agnostic, I guess. But spending five years in, in drug with homeless people and neighborhoods blighted by poverty and drug dens and seeing that the only thing that worked for a lot of people was religion. And it wasn't just a pragmatic role, it really played a real central role in their life. I, I couldn't ignore that. I couldn't look beyond that and not write about it. Well, it's clearly that this was an evolution for you as well, as well along the way. So in order to understand the evolution, tell me a little bit more about your roots. <clears throat> where, did, where were you born? Uh, you mentioned your parents were Democrats. Tell me about how you were brought up. Yeah, I was born in a um, small southern town in Florida. A lot of people don't think Florida's the south, but believe me, my town was very much the south. Um, 500 people in the town. Um, My parents were a bit of the outsiders. They had arrived um, in the late 50s when most people in the town had been there for three or four generations. Um, And uh, my father was a professor. um, And again, one of the few professors in town. And uh, that's where we were, grew up in this 99% white working class community in, in the South. And um, the minute I could, I got out of there. I um, was good at math. And uh, as much as I liked the people in the town, and I, and I did like them, um, it, it just wasn't for me. Um, and 
I was an altar boy. I did all the things in town, played Little League, played high school football. But um, by, by the time I graduated high school, I was uh, reading science books and an atheist and didn't feel quite like I fit in the town and wanted something different. So I um, left, went to college, got an undergraduate in math. Where'd you go to school? A new college in Sarasota, Florida. And how did you get from there to the PhD? Um, I decided that um, I took tests and I was good at it. It just came naturally to me. And I was always into into the big questions. And the big question in my mind was um, cosmology. And so I went to Johns Hopkins, and got a, who, which had the space telescope, um, and this was in 80, 86, 87. And I went there and got a PhD in theoretical physics. And from there to Wall Street, what to was Wall the Street, path? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, that doesn't I, seem like a logical um, progression. <laughs> I was one of the first people to do it. It's now a pretty common route, um, which they call them rocket scientists. At some point, people on Wall Street realized that... Um, it's all numbers, and here is this group of people who are good at numbers. And uh, I wasn't particularly great at physics. Uh, you know, to be to make a career in physics, you have to um, absolutely love it. And I, I liked it, but I didn't absolutely love it. And so um, I wasn't particularly good at it. And so I left and uh, went to Wall Street. Were you good at it as a bond trader? Yeah, I was. How long did you do it? Twenty years. And how did your lifestyle change while you were doing that? Um. Quite a bit, um, although uh, me and my family would like to say we didn't change that much. But I think you know, over time, you know, I got paid more than my first year than my father ever made. Um, far more, ten times more than a guy's a grad student. <laughs> um, and um, you know, we lived what I thought was a relatively modest life, but it wasn't. You know, I mean, we had a big apartment in Brooklyn and uh, sent our kids to uh, a private school and did all the things you do when you live in New York City as a wealthy person. So then what happened? Um, I always was, um, I always took walks to relieve stress, long, long, long walks, like 20 miles. And being something of a science geek, um, I would make, I made one, I made a goal to walk the entire length of the New York City subway system above ground. <laughs> um, and uh, I had done that, and then I realized at some point that I hadn't gone to the Bronx. I still had to, I would call them my terminus walks. I'd take the subway to the end and walk home along the route. And around 2008, during the financial crisis, um, my life changed dramatically because of the financial crisis. And my kids started getting older, and my walks could be a little bit longer. And um, I started making those walks not just about a goal of completing the subway system, walking all, walking wherever you could, but I started realizing what I enjoyed about the walks was the people I met during the walks, um, the kind of things that you had to experience that you necessarily wouldn't want to experience um, or didn't plan to experience. Um, and so eventually I started bringing a camera along um, to kind of document the people I met and the stories I heard during these walks. And that's evolved into me basically taking pictures of people and writing their stories. 
What kind of camera did you use? Was it an obtrusive one? Or um, initially, or it was just a little point and shoot, but mm -hmm. then I got a real camera, and uh, Nikon. And for for the for the photo geeks out there, it's a Nikon uh, D5. Where, had you ever done photography before? Um, just as a hobby. And so from there, all the way to publishing a book, essentially of photographs, you just found something that you were good at that you could use to tell a story. What I liked most about photography was, um, A, people wanted to have their photos taken. The minute my camera was there, people would ask me to take their photos. And that allowed a conversation to develop about, um, about them. Um, you know, when anybody saw my camera and wanted their picture taken, inevitably they'd spend an hour and a half telling me about their life. And, you know, for the viewer, these are not people who usually have pictures taken. These are um, drug addicts, homeless people, um, the poorest of the poor often, um, in, in neighborhoods that, to be blunt, a lot of white people don't go, um, largely Hispanic, largely black neighborhoods. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a conduit in retrospect, it was a conduit for me to learn more, learn in a different way, to learn from people, rather than from books and spreadsheets and, and, and articles. You ended up spending quite a bit of time in one section of the Bronx called Hunts Point. So right. why, why did that part of the city and such a big, diverse city attract you so much? Um, a variety of reasons, but initially I went there because I was told not to go there, which is kind of my... Um, way of dealing sometimes. I remember I was on Wall Street and people were like, oh, where are you walking this time? I said, oh, I'm going to the end of the second, the, the two train, I believe it was. And then I'm going to walk home. And, they go, and they're like, oh, you're going to have to go, whatever, you, you, that's the Bronx. I said, yeah, that's the Bronx. He said, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to Hunts Point. Sure. <laughs> um, and the reason they told me that was um, it's considered to be the most... Uh, the poorest neighborhood in New York. It's long stigmatized as being poor, crime-ridden. Um, uh, HBO had done a salacious show called Hookers at the Point. So it has a big stigma attached to it um, because of drugs and the sex trade. Um, I didn't really know much of that. I just knew that I wasn't supposed to go there. And I remember when I first walked in there, it's, it's, a, it's a really... I just want to say it's a wonderful neighborhood before saying anything else about it. Um, and that's part of what I try to communicate in my book. And I saw that the minute I walked in there, um, that it's a, it's a tongue of land jutting out. If you ever fly into LaGuardia, you fly over it coming from the north. It's a, jut, it's a tongue of land that juts out into the East River, almost directly across from LaGuardia Airport. <coughs> and it, it's kind of a gated community in all the wrong ways. Um, on three sides, it's, it's cut off from everything else by water. And on the fourth side, it's cut off by the uh, massive interstate expressway. Um, and so it's kind of where New York puts the things it doesn't want. Um, garbage dumps, uh, um, junkyards, auto body shops. Um, but it's also home to 40,000 people. Um, and who are they? Who lives there? Mostly, um, I think it's 99% Hispanic and black. Um, working class, 50% um, below poverty level, um, and they live in one area. And uh, 
the minute I walked into town, into the neighborhood, into the neighborhood, I felt, I felt, in a very odd way, it was like what I had grown up with, which was a small town. Um, it's a place where people watched out for each other, even though it had semis zooming through it to go down to the um, um, down to the the, the waterfront, um, and um, it also, as a photographer, because it faces the south, it has good light, so it's, it doesn't have any tall buildings. It has good light, so it was very beautiful photographically. So I want to put a, another picture on screen, and uh, this is a person who's name is Takesha. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is she? Um, she was the first. Um, there is a sex trade, uh, and she's a homeless addict. I mean, she's much more than that. Um, but that's what she would be called. Uh, um, she's been living on and off the streets for 40 years. She was one of the first people I met in Hunts Point. Um, I had kind of intentionally, she's always walking the streets, and I intentionally had kind of out of respect for what she was doing and knowing big differences between us, I kind of had um, given her space. Um, eventually, she called me over. She kept on yelling, yo, you got a picture? Come take a picture of me. And so I walked over and took a picture of her. It was a Sunday morning, I believe, or Saturday. It was empty because the, the, all, the, all the semis were gone. And she was in the industrial part of Hunts Point. And immediately, her intelligence just kind of came right through. And we spoke for about an hour, half an hour or so, and she told me her life, which is just, you know, um, it's like a cliche of everything wrong that can happen to somebody. And eventually, um, I asked her what I asked everybody I photographed, which is, um, you know, um, what's one sentence you, uh, how do you want me to describe you? Give me one sentence to describe you. And she just shot back. She said, I think it was like, um, as what I am, a prostitute, a mother of six, and a child of God. Boom. So. Now, you've been on this project for years, and it seems like you're still emotional when you talk yeah, about it. Yeah, sorry. No, but what, why is that? Why is it that she brings so much emotion? Um, because I, I, I think, um, sorry, I always tear up when I talk about Takesha. Um, I think um, just the as an author, there's the frustration of not being able to communicate how rich of a person that, you know, you ask me who she is. It's like, and I go to this, I go to the cliche, she's a homeless addict, but there's so much more than that. And then, so part of it's the frustration of an author of not being able to say, well, she's this immensely rich, smart, wonderful person who, um, you know, just can be called a homeless addict. And... You know, I, I also get emotional because I know how how rough her life has been and how rough her life still is and how unfair that is. You uh, used her, or she became, a, 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 at her her will, a sort of your guide to Hunt's Point. That's right. Um, how, how did that relationship work, and who were the kinds of people she introduced you to? Uh, it's basically, a, I call it a street family. That's what they treat. Um, it's roughly 30 um, a mixture of uh, in and out of roughly a, a collection of 25 to 30 people who um, call them call each other sister, brother, father, mother, um, and they act like a family. Um, and they're homeless and they shoot up heroin, often 
10 bags a day. And uh, they live under bridges and in abandoned buildings and broken down cars and on the roofs of, um, you know, in pits, literally pits, um, under, <laughs> under expressways or wherever. It's an evolving, it's just a, but, um, and uh, some of them do sex work, some of them don't. Some of them own uh, scrap iron. Some of them steal. <laughs> um, some of them rob. You know, it's a it's, they got to make 150 bucks a day to shoot up heroin. And uh, she and I, she, amongst others, basically let me enter their life and kind of guided me through this community. And for roughly two and a half to three years, I was kind of kind of an outsider fly on the wall, if you will, and a kind of honorary member <laughs> uh, of this family um, who they were kind enough to let me in with my camera. At what point did you quit your job in Wall Street and do this full time? Um, after about nine months of, of hanging out in Hunts Point and doing that, I just, it was just absurd. I mean, I couldn't, I had this absurd, um, weird life of kind of being, on a, being a Wall Street trader in the day and on weekends being under bridges with... Um, heroin addicts. You know, when I was reading your book, um, and there's two parts to it, which we'll talk about, one Hunts Point, one around the rest of the country, but I kept thinking about your own family, uh, because clearly you were changing so much, and you were also leaving them at odd hours and the like. How did your family members react to this journey that you were on? Um, they were, I have a supportive family, which I'm very fortunate of, and I think the way I explain it is this was more me than being a Wall Street banker was, and they knew that, and so they appreciated that. But, but if, you, if you knew me growing up growing up, or knew me in college, I wasn't a Wall Street banker. This was more who I was. And so it was kind of like, oh, you're back to being you again. Um, but also, you know, once I quit, I was, I had more, I was physically around my family more. You know, uh, I may be gone for two months at a time when I ended up going on the road, but I also am back for two months, always there. And so, you know, it's been tough on my family, and part, that's part of the problem um, with doing something like this is it changed me, and it's unfair to my family. That's, it's, that's not fair. They're not. They didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know, I think the, the and uh, I think the old book is Mosquito Coast about a guy who goes on a journey and drags his family through hell. And at some point I said, I'm not, I can't mosquito coast this. I can't do this. i got to put boundaries here. And that's some way that's partially why I stopped going to the Bronx. Along the way, um, you write about the fact that uh, you got very involved in people's lives. And, and, of course, some of the critics of your book suggest that's where the line with journalism stops, if you <laughs> involved yourself in line. You've, what do you think about the... Oh, I could spend hours talking about the that. The rule one. book of, of what uh, you... I, I, I'm... <laughs> do my best not to get too angry. Um, the rule book is well-intentioned, um, but it's conveniently a way to keep people from doing projects like this. It's conveniently a way to keep a boundary and not getting involved in people's lives. You know, um, I got criticized for helping people out financially, which I can't imagine not doing. <laughs> I, 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 how can I not buy people food? How can I see somebody who is a friend of mine at that point um, and withdraw and not help, not help them find money? Um, 
it's just basic human decency. <laughs> These people accepted me into their lives, and for me not to help in a way that I could, you know, I had I have money, and not to. It wasn't just money; it was driving them to detox. It was visiting them in prison. It was taking them to hospitals. It was taking them home to visit their family. How can I not do that? I don't. I just the idea that you're not supposed to get involved with the subject is well intended. I understand why it's there, but it's also a way to keep people from writing about these things. I mean, I find it unethical for a journalist to do this, or if it, or an artist to do this, and not help out to come in, get somebody's story, and leave. And what kind of boundaries did you give them about how you would use their stories? Uh, do we know their real names? Did they give you permission to use their photographs? Yes. I, in Hunt's Point specifically, it was a three-year project in which uh, there's a lot of pictures I haven't published. There's a lot of stories I haven't told. Um, there's pictures I've taken off the, off, off the, off the when requested. You know, one of the things I do regret is I don't think they, I don't think anybody can fully understand what the internet is. Um, and so initially, I and think how it, exposed you are. Yeah, and I think, I think everybody, I'm fully comfortable with the level of understanding that everybody involved in it had at the time. <laughs> I can't say now that I'm comfortable necessarily that that I didn't know it was going to become this and. I couldn't have predicted it was going to become this, and I don't think you know, anybody else could have. So I think there are cases where people might feel un- un- uncomfortable that it's out there, but for three years they told me they were comfortable, and I have to go with that. What was the progression from you walking, meeting, taking photographs, to you doing blogs uh, with, with photographs, Flickr and the like, to columns that appeared in The Guardian to this book? How did that all happen? It was basically that progression just there. It was, just, it was, it was never intended. Did The Guardian see you on the Internet and come find you? It was actually um, it was an editor at The Guardian, Heidi Moore, who um, knew me from my um, business writing. And she knew me. She saw me on on, on 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 Twitter, and asked me to write some business articles for her, which I did on Wall Street, kind of um, not very favorable to Wall Street articles. And then from there, she introduced me to the op-ed people, who um, I started writing more political pieces. And, and who who came? How did the book idea come together? Um, that was entirely accidental, meaning. Um, I did Hunt's Point for three years, and eventually I had to leave for, for both emotional reasons. I just I was in too deep, um, and it wasn't fair to my family, and it wasn't necessarily um, uh, I was um, it was getting me to be um, I was drinking too much. <laughs> um, it wasn't a good place um, to see such pain and live be surrounded by such pain. And I exercised an option a few people had, which is I left, and. I um, decided that to be to be a geek about it, to be mathematical about it, to put on my old science hat, I had learned all these things in Hunt's Point that I wanted to see if they were, quote, translationally, translationally invariant. Were they true? Was this just Hunt's Point? Was um, what, I, what I was seeing in Hunt's Point, the vast injustices? Um, the... But, but beneath it all, still a, a, a human dignity that shone through. Was this something that was unique to Hunt's Point, or is this true elsewhere? And so I 
got in my van and after clearing my head and getting sober and started going all other places. Before we leave Hunts Point, tell me one other person who really impacted you from that, um, from that area. It'd be Millie. Um, Millie uh, is, um, again, is a homeless addict. Um, she's, she's dead now. Um, and it was her death. Um, lifestyle, part of the family, part of the street family. And um, um, she went missing. And just kind of, you know, it's kind of common. People just disappear. Um, and then a rumor fills the void. So she, you know, someone said she got stabbed and someone said she was thrown, they found her body in, in, in the East River and then fanciful tales were told. I had figured that what would really happen, like in most cases, that she either was in prison or had gone to detox or managed to find family members and kind of escaped the streets for a while. But um, eventually I found her, um, found her, found her body. Um, she had uh, died in Lincoln Memorial Hospital. And um, uh, she had died with no papers, um, no identification. And so um, after six months, her body was buried on something called Heart Island which is an island in the East River where about a million unclaimed bodies are buried. It's been, they've been burying people there in New York City since 1865. It's a pauper's field, I think is what they call it. Um, put in a plywood box and put in a mass trench and buried. And um, eventually um, I um, went through the legal loopholes of um, getting her body exhumed and properly buried um, but you know I, I kind of kind of both smile which is not a nice thing to do because I think back to like old me because when I found out that she was buried on an island you can't visit that island by the way there's a million people buried there um, it's run by the New York City Department of Correction oddly just and you can now you can because of the work of one woman uh, this wonderful woman, Melinda Hunt, I believe is her name. Um, you can visit it now once a once a month. You can take a ferry out there and and uh, step on the island, and that's about it. You can't go to any grave. And I, I you know, I kind of think back to old me when I found out she was buried in the trench on an island you can't visit. I would have said, so what? She's dead. What does it matter where someone's buried? You know, like um, because being the very rational, scientific guy. But what I, you know, as someone said to me on the streets is, you know, when they eventually got, when I eventually got her a proper um, gravestone, um, or, or helped people get her a proper gravestone, they said, um, you know, her memory really doesn't die until we start talking, telling stories about her, and having the physical gravestone there allows that. So you left Hunts Point and set out on this three-year journey. Was that well, roughly long? two how and a half? How many thousands of miles did you traverse? <laughs> Um, I think the somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand. And how did you choose the communities you visited? Um, it was kind of the way I chose Hunts Point, which is, you know, I, I kind of was mean about it to people I, I like because I would say where where should I go, and then when they tell me, I would go the where they where they didn't tell me. <laughs> I would kind of then exit off. <laughs> if they said, "Oh, you need to go to blank," I would put an X through it, saying, "Okay, I'm not going to go there." Um, because I wanted to go for places that people never go to. 
um, like Hunts Point. Um, and so I ended up going to places, and then I use poverty maps. I use maps of addiction. I use maps of um, of crime rates to find places that, you know, I had I had this kind of big map in my mind of places that were I wasn't going to go to when people told me to go to them, um, and then places that kind of stood stood out because they had um, high poverty or high crime. I'm going to put another photograph on screen, and that's of McDonald's, because for you, it became a locus of your exploration. Why McDonald's? What does it do in these communities? Um, I, You know, in Hunts Point in the Bronx, I found myself in the McDonald's all the time. The reason I found myself in the McDonald's all the time is because everybody else was there. You know, Takesha, Millie, um, uh, Shelly, um, Ramon, Sarah, they were all there in McDonald's. It was the only place that offered them a kind of respite from the streets and allowed them to escape the heat or the cold or allowed them to use a bathroom, allowed them to use the internet, uh, you know, if they had a phone, um, allowed them to charge their phone. Um, it was basically a community center where people didn't judge them. And this is true throughout the country uh, and, that McDonald's has yep. become this. What, what, is it, what institutions is it replacing in our society? Um, the town square in some ways, the community center. You know, I think people... When I write about McDonald's and talk about how it's become a com- kind of this ad hoc community center, this place where you can, where people who live on the streets can maintain a, gain a moment of dignity by rejoining society, not being stared at, just being allowed to be there. You know, if you go into any McDonald's, you'll find them. There are people like Takesha and Millie, um, yeah, just people who are living on the cusp. Who will, you'll see them in a booth, you know, maybe with their old cell phone with big cracks on it just sitting there or a Bible reading it, um, who are escaping the streets, just hanging out for three hours. How does... Uh, but I'm um, sorry, the I'm institutions sorry. it replaces um, mm-hmm. is the town square, but I would say that in many ways um, libraries form that role too. How does the McDonald's Corporation feel about this or the local managers? Do I they encourage? Or they um, you know, I I don't know. Um, I do know that in Did every... Do you ever see managers chasing people out? No, no. You know, I think maybe one out of a one out of a million. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think someone I, I can't say for guarantee because I haven't asked. I, I, I suspect. I mean, I think McDonald's knows what it's doing. It knows that it it, it knows its clientele because often it's, it's you know it's people who are friends of the workers. You know, McDonald's is very reflective of the neighborhood. You know, it's the people who work in the McDonald's are from the community, and so. The bond is between often the employees and the people who are using it as a shelter. You know, they may be their, they may know them from high school. They may know their brother from high school. They may know their sister from high school. So in many cases, it's um, kind of, again, it's very much the, the employees there are very much part of the community as well. You also you referenced this earlier, but you small churches, not the big institutional churches, but small churches were very much a part of what you found in these communities. Uh, where is this one? That's um, it's Prestonburg. Kentucky, I believe. And what do they represent in these folks' lives? And, and everything, absolutely everything. You know, I mean, this particular um, young lady was part of a family that um, I don't want to use their name. It's just, but um, who had um, didn't have much. They had driven for. They had driven. They didn't, didn't have a car. They had someone drive them the thirty-five miles from the place they were living down to this church, which was a, you know, a Sunday night service. 
um, six hour Sunday night service. I was there for the whole thing. Um, <laughs> that uh, was everything. That was their community. It was their. It was a. It was a. It was the beginning. It was their their day. It was their week. It was everything. And how did it? How did the the presence in those churches and the time you spent impact your spirituality? It um, again. It, um, you know, <laughs> I jokingly say with the McDonald's and the churches, as I went from being a, a vegetarian atheist to <laughs> a meat-eating churchgoer. So, do you um, still go to church now? Um, not as much as I should. But time um, to time. Yes. And before you went, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I, I want to move, because our time is going to evaporate so quickly, to a, um, a, a, another photograph that uh, I went back to a, a number of times. This was in oh. Portsmouth, Ohio. And uh, this is a father pushing his kids in a shopping cart. Um, how did you happen upon them? What's the story you want to tell with that photograph? Um, they were, you know, I, I, before before getting in this, I just want to say that the father was doing everything he could. He was a good father. And I think people would probably not. He was doing trying the best. He was doing what he knew, as he said. Two kids came in my life. I was going to do the best I could to raise them. Did he have a job? No. Um, not seen in the picture is is the mother, who um, I talk about in the book briefly, is standing um, along that road panhandling, um, and that road is right outside the McDonald's, outside of um, uh, Portsmouth, Ohio. Uh, I think the, the church was Prestonburg, Kentucky. This is Portsmouth, Ohio, and. Um, they were just, they were just there in the community. And it was just this father, while the mother was working panhandling, the father would just push the kids around and maybe sit underneath a tree and play with them. And um, where did they live? They lived, in his telling, um, they lived in a garage behind uh, the home of someone he knew. Who, uh, as he said, it's not that they, it's not that bad, right? They they ran a court out. He says, sometimes we can rent a cord out there to run a heater. Um, but it's not that bad right now because it's not that cold. Did you ultimately, uh, I think I read in one of the stories about this, that you ultimately struggled with it but called social services yes, on did. these folks? I did. It took me, believe me, um, I was there in town three different times um, or four different times. Over the, I would say, an aggregate, maybe three weeks over four different times. But this is one of the trips that was lasted like four days. And I ran into them on the first day, and on the fourth day before I left, I called social services on them. What happened? I they can't tell me, but from what I can read between the lines, they had they, they came and took the kids away, which I you know, was the right thing. Um, it was hard um, because they trusted me. And you feel that you violated that trust. Um, it's hard to make a decision for someone when you don't know the full story, but, you know, it was the right decision. Um, I asked three or four other people's advice, and it was the right decision. Um, but um, I guess what, to me, was the bigger takeaway when I try to explain in the book is this wasn't, this this father pushing two kids around, um, and it, and those blankets are filthy, by the way, and uh, the cart's filthy. It doesn't come across necessarily in the picture, but it was, it was re re reeked, which is partially why I called the um, human services. But um, nobody cared. 
It was just normal. Like, it was shocking to me, and I've seen a lot. <laughs> but this, this is near the end of my five years, and so I've seen a lot. I've been in crack house. Uh, I've seen people have septic wounds. I've seen people, you know, um, do desperate things for drugs. But, I mean, this shocked me. And what shocked me even more was that people, cars just drove by. Like, you know, like this was normal. You know, there was a minister who came and gave him a slap, you know, who came by and gave him a Bible and um, some slabs of water. But otherwise, people just kept driving by. And that, the fact that it became normal was what was shocking to me. In Selma, Alabama, you met Tonio. You don't have a photograph of him. That's correct. Uh, but what was he's been shot six times, is that right? Yeah, I believe I, I messed up. I checked my notes. It was either nine or six. And you... Uh, he saw me. Yeah, I saw every bullet wound. <laughs> you did. Uh, the interesting thing about him is that he accepts this as his, yeah. as you write about, yeah. his, his life. Yeah. This is what the options available to him. This is, this is, I mean, he, he had, he he had does, no... What does he do? For, how does he make his money to live? Drugs. Sells them? Yes. And, and where do they come from? I suspect from... I, 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 sometimes you learn not to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suspect um, from up north. But I, I didn't want to know. What, what, the connection with McDonald's that, that was compelling is that he says... He, I'm unhirable. I go, and if he went to work in McDonald's, what would happen? I think he, I think the phrase he used, I don't remember, it was if I, if I put my gun, he showed me his gun. He was proud of his gun. Everybody showed me their guns in Selma. Um, they, they would always flash me their piece. And um, he said, like, you know, if I put my gun down and go put on an apron and work at McDonald's, someone's going to put a cat man in me. Someone's going to shoot me. I was like, I, 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 this is the life I live. i got to shoot first or else I'm going to be shot. And how old was he, approximately? 32. So he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and one of the things is, you know, you talk about permission, and I don't have a picture of him, but he wanted me to take a picture of him. And that's a case where I chose not to take a picture of him, and I said, I don't think you want me to take a picture of you. <laughs> you know, you're running from six felonies. You just t- just admitted to me that you've been involved in nine shootings or six shootings. <laughs> it's like, why are you, t- like, I, I don't, you know, don't let me take a picture of you. Another story from <clears throat> Selma was the brick reclamation work. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, um, the person who was um, friends with a, um, the drug dealer there was a former drug dealer himself who, um, he said, you got to see this. And I'm like, what? And then you, you, there was these four or five old massive um, cotton warehouses that were built in the 1850s or so that were being dismantled, and now they were just piles of rubble. And people were being paid to, to sift through the rubble, scrape the bricks off, stack them into stacks, I think, of 500. And they would get, I think, 20 bucks or 10 bucks for doing this. And it was, you know, people's hands were bleeding. This was all the job. This was all the work they had. This was the only, <laughs> this was only work paying people hard cash. In Selma. Yeah, and, and the people working were... They weren't angry. I mean, they weren't, you know, they were kind of like, they just like, yeah, this is work. You got to do what you got to do. I got like, you know, three kids to feed. I got to do what I got to do. The last stop that I have time for, and I'm sorry for this because there's so many stories, is Lewiston, Maine. Yes. Um, very different group of people that you got in, involved with and in photographing there. Who were they? 
Um, uh, Somali um, refugees. Um, I, I, I don't even Somali Americans. Um, they had, um, you know, Lewiston. I think it's accepted its first. Uh, Lewiston was a primarily Quebecois, um, French Canadian, French American, French Canadian American um, town that had mills, and the mills left, and ninety nine percent white, and then. Um, Catholic relief agencies moved in an uh, African family, and then within 10 years, um, there are roughly, uh, I think, 15,000 Somali Americans living in downtown and uh, turning it into their home. Successfully? Yeah. Starting businesses? And Starting businesses. I mean, they, they've reclaimed downtown. Downtown was dying with nothing. So what's the moral of that story? Um, there's a lot of morals there, but I think, you know, that that... I understand, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of, immigrants in the United States face a lot of problems. But I think the lesson to me of Lewiston is how well it works, is that you have this Somali-American community that moved in in 1999 and dramatically changed the town, and the town, so by and large, is, is working okay. There's problems, but in general, it's working out. In the brief 10 minutes that we have left, I wanted to kind of put a wrapper on all this conversation about what you learned in like. And let me start with a couple of statistics. First of all, we've talked about poverty. And if people don't know it, the national, the federal poverty level is 12,000 and change for a single and 15,000 for a family in the country. Um, just this month, the Joint Economic Committee in Congress released a report that said the mortality from deaths of despair far surpasses anything seen in America since the dawn of the 20th century. Um, the recent re- uh, increase has primarily been driven by an unprecedented epidemic of drug o- overdoses, uh, but even excluding those deaths, the combined mortality rate from suicides and alcohol-related deaths is higher than at any point in more than 100 years. Um, the, statistically, there are 70,000 drug overdose deaths in 2018 and 88,000 deaths in the country from alcohol. You've documented a lot of this. What do you think is, is going on in our country? What is the cause for this that's happening? I'm, um, I'm a bit of an outlier. I, I don't think it's about supply. I think it's about, addiction is not about supply, it's about a demand. It's about a demand, you know, to, uh, to be politically incorrect. Drugs are popular because drugs work. And what they, what the way they work is they they numb the pain, and there's a lot of pain out there in the country. So, there's what are the causes of the pain? How did we get to this point? Um, <clears throat> people feel humiliated. People feel a lack of, um, uh, you know, the phrase the phrase I use is um, people want to be a member, a valued member of something larger than themselves. And currently, right now, a lot of people don't feel a valued member of something larger than themselves. Um, what used to be. Uh, one of the one of the one of the forms of that to be a valued member of something larger than themselves with faith with church, and in many cases, uh, we've been um, we as a society have demeaned the value of faith, so that if somebody does feel religious, they feel a bit humiliated, they feel a bit scorned for it. Um, community, local community, was another. To be a value member of something larger than yourself is to be a member of your community, to be part of the bowling league, to be part of the Elks Club, to be part of, you know, the the, the county fair committee. Um, 
you know, we've become so mobile now and so, so much emphasis put on, you know, we in the front row. We, we move, 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 move. We tell everybody they need to move. You know, if your town's dying, just move. And if you stay put, then you're a loser. And somehow you're, you're, you're parochial, you're, back, you're, you're, you're lacking. But so all those things, I call them non-credential forms and meanings, those things that provided people up, you were just gifted to them at birth. You didn't have to build a resume to get them. You had your family, you had your place, you had your faith. And those gave you, a, those, were, those grounded you and gave you a role and made you feel valued. We've devalued those to the point where a lot of people, unless they're economically successful, unless you're educated, which means you're, which gives you the pathway to be economically successful, that's the only that's the only real thing we value these days is how much stuff you have and how much education you have, and that's left a lot of people feeling like they're not valued, and. You know, crack houses, drug traps, and, and prisons are filled with people who don't feel valued, who felt like, you know, they were kind of humiliated, left behind, scorned, ignored. And, uh, you know, that's, if you feel rejected, and we've reje- we made so many people in this country feel rejected, one of the ways to deal with that is just turning to drugs. And what about the absence of jobs? <clears throat> That's hurt. I mean, again, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that held these communities, part of the reason these communities are falling apart is, you know, in every community I went to, in every place I went to, people could literally point at a field. It was either surrounded by barbed wire or it was just empty or it was it had a dilapidated building in it. So that's where the jobs used to be. <laughs> and the, you guys took those jobs away. And those jobs, you know, I remember when I was in Battle Creek, Michigan, which is where cereal's made. Um, you know, the, the, the couple who told me that they literally walked out of high school onto the factory floor where they worked for 40 years. And that's enabled them to build a life um, this ability to build a life, to, uh, build a home, and everybody wants to build a home. Everybody wants to have a family and build a life. Everybody. It would enable them to get the job, have this ability, buy a home, raise a family, have grandkids, um, and that stability is not there anymore. The cover of your book has a blurb from J.D. Vance. Uh, our viewers will remember him as the best-selling author of um, Hillbilly Elegy. It's the quote is a profound book. It will break your heart, but also leave you with hope. I'm struggling to see the hope. <laughs> um, the hope is that um, at every people people endure. You know, um, one of the things I wish I had done more of in my book is like you go into a crack house, like you know, you go underneath a bridge with addicts. There's jokes being told. There's humor. There's you know moments of levity. <laughs> There's people celebrating birthdays. I remember, um, well, I don't think it was Takesha's. I think it was Sarah's birthday. Homeless. We're we're literally under a bridge where we we had to crawl along a pipe for about thirty yards. 
And it's odd because it literally goes over the Acela underneath every once in a while and Acela zooms by. Mm. And we're sitting there, it's like 8, 12 at night, filth, the Acela zooming by once in a while, um, and someone, someone stole the cake for her. <laughs> someone crawled through for this cake, you know, laugh about someone stealing something, but they had gone into the whatever, the shop right, whatever, and, and lifted, managed to steal a whole birthday cake. <laughs> and it was a birthday party. So are you going to stay on this beat, or have you exhausted it for yourself? Um, I'm not sure. It's it's hard. I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not going to say, oh, woe is me, because I had, I've, had, I've been very lucky. But it, it, it takes a toll. Um, you know, it's partly because... Um, it, it's so frustrating. Like, it, it gets to be so frustrating to see so, to see something and not be able to, you know, to rejoin a polite polite society and just not feel people don't get it, and so that's frustrating. So, for the last bit of time we have left, what is your hope that this project, this book, will do? What would be the best outcome? Um, that readers, um, you know, before you judge somebody, take a moment to understand to realize that they probably are going through a lot. Um, you know, before you judge someone's decisions at an individual level or at a group level, you know, rethink whether it's a personal flaw that's gotten there or it's the situation they found themselves in. And that nine times out of ten, that person is probably doing their best against overwhelming odds. Chris Arnati, that is it for our time. Um, thank you very much for telling us about Dignity and about your work documenting the uh, back row, as you call it, of society. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 